technology is enabling all sorts of amazing developments in medical treatment today. And telemedicine is one important way that more and more patients in far-flung locations are gaining access to the latest and greatest diagnostics, consultations, and procedures. Telemedicine is also now offering healthcare providers the opportunity to put their patients in front of a camera or computer screen to engage with specialists some distance away, a sort of modern-day virtual referral. But just when you think you've gotten the lay of the land and the possibilities, along comes something that's using technology and tugging at the status quo in an even deeper way. And that's probably why so many are talking about Project ECHO and why we are going to learn about the initiative right now on this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. And we come to you bi-weekly, and also you can find us later on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. It's a real pleasure and honor to have Dr. Sanjeev Arora with us today. He's the visionary founder and director of Project ECHO, what has to be considered a most disruptive innovation that you two can link up with. We also have Dr. Don Berwick with us today to help us think through the significance of Project ECHO in light of all kinds of transformative ambitions for health and health care. So we're going to get right to those introductions, but first here's IHI's John Gothier. He has some reminders about how to make the most of your time with us on today's program. John. All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. On the right of the screen is our chat window. If you tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's where you can ask our panelists your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see all the questions and comments being shared. There are a few ways that folks have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto your computer and listening to the program by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat. A simple solution to any audio hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem per persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. Their number's on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by the guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they will send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we could use your help for that. Please take some time after the program to fill out our very quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Madge. All right. Thanks so much, John. And if you tweet either during or after the program, uh, please remember to put at the IHI in your tweets so we can uh, pull in others to the discussion. All right, some very brief guest introductions. Joining us by phone, we have Sanjeev Arora. He's the director and founder of Project ECHO. He is a distinguished professor of medicine in the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of New Mexico Health Sciences Center. Over the last 10 years, Dr. Arora has received numerous awards for the Extension for Community Healthcare Outcomes, or ECHO, model. And that's what we're going to learn more about in just a minute. Welcome, Sanjeev. Thank you very much. Ter terrific. Also on the phone, we have Don Berwick. He's President Emeritus and Senior Fellow at IHI. After founding IHI and running it as CEO until 2010, when he became the Administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Don's in constant motion, so we're thrilled he could join us today. Welcome, Don. 
Delight to be here, Madge. Thank you. All right. Terrific. And joining me in the studio is Saren Yaler. She's IHI's Executive Director of North America Strategy and Operations, and that includes stewardship of IHI's Leadership Alliance. I really have Saren to thank for putting more than one bug in my ear about Project ECHO for many years. She's a great student and champion of this innovation, as well as many others. Welcome, Saren Thank you so much, Matt. All right, today's WIHI is just a little different in that we're going to give Sanjeev the floor and a bit more time to give you as full a picture as possible of Project ECHO. That's going to be followed by some reflections from Don Berwick and perhaps a question or two for Sanjeev from Don and from Saranya. Then we're going to open things up for your questions and comments, which you're also welcome to chat in at any time as they occur to you, but we're going to wait to reply until pretty much the halfway mark of the show. So that's in about 25 minutes. So let's get started. Sanjeev, Project Echo Story, uh, perhaps some are already familiar with this, starts with wanting to increase access to treatment for thousands of people in New Mexico with hepatitis C. That was against a backdrop of nowhere near the specialists available, nor where they were needed most. So how did you come up with a solution that I have to say to me in some ways sidestepped that seemingly impossible uh, reality and barrier? And welcome again. Thank you, Madge, and I first want to say how honored I am uh, to be invited to uh, speak at this forum, and I'm, I'm honored to be participating with Don Berwick and Saranya. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very long-time um, fan of Dr. Berwick, and um, his work has been a source of inspiration for me for most of my professional career, so thank you again. Uh, you know, ECHO stands for Extension for Community Healthcare Outcomes, and our mission to democratize medical knowledge and get best practice care to underserved people all over the world. And um, we are estimating uh, that about more than 6 billion people of the 7 billion on the planet uh, don't have access to best practice care or the knowledge required um, to actually deliver this care in, the, in the remote areas. We've done some surveys in, New, in the United States alone uh, also, and in rural, when we ask rural physicians working at federally qualified health centers in the United States, uh, essentially um, the score we get is 4.9 out of 5. Almost all of them say that accessing specialty expertise is a very major need for them and that they have a great difficulty in doing that. And so that's why we've set a goal to touch the lives of 1 billion people by 2025. Um, because this is such a major problem, and we, we are estimating tens of millions of people die all over the world because the right knowledge doesn't exist at the right place at the right time to provide good care to them. Uh, the underlying problem why this knowledge deficit, deficit exists is because knowledge is growing at an exponential pace in the world. Um, so you have an exponential growth curve and um, whereas our model for distribution and application of that knowledge to serve humanity is a sort of a linear function. That is, a doctor has to see a patient, he has to uh, learn the stuff, then he has to go and apply it. And, and this, um, so there's an increasing gap between what really a doctor needs to know and the amount of knowledge that exists. And therefore, in order to solve this problem, one needs to have a learning method which also has logarithmic scale. Otherwise, the gap would keep increasing. And um, Don Berwick has described our model, which is the, uh, essentially the key 
phrase that we've adopted is that what ECHO wants to do is to move knowledge instead of moving patients. And Madge, as you said, um, you know, I'm a gastroenterologist and liver disease specialist. I was treating hepatitis C in New Mexico. And uh, at that time, 28,000 patients had been diagnosed and less than 5% had been treated. Very few doctors, actually about only three or four, were actually treating hepatitis C. And I had the only dedicated clinic at the university. There was an eight-month wait to see me. And people were driving hundreds of miles each way to, for clinic visits, making 12 to 18 trips for one course of treatment, which consisted of a chemotherapy-like regimen with injections and pills. And as a result, uh, less than 5% had been treated. And uh, this is a disease that can be fatal and often can kill you with end-stage liver disease, cirrhosis, and liver cancers. And these patients started coming to me. And it was very, very um, exasperating to know that, look, there was a cure for this disease. Uh, but uh, no, not a single primary care doctor in New Mexico was treating them. And so um, they were not being able to access care. And if they were poor, they couldn't afford to come all the way, plus the long wait. So we developed ECHO to solve that problem. And uh, the model is based on four key ideas. The first is we want to use technology, video conferencing technology, to leverage the expertise of a multidisciplinary team at the university, in this case a liver specialist, a pharmacist, um, and a psychiatrist. And, and the second um, uh, key um, uh, thing in the Project ECHO is to share. I think if you can go to the next slide, that would be helpful. Okay, let's see. Benefits? Yeah. Let's I, I think the... <laughs> go back. Do you no. want... Which one would you like? I hope we have that one. Yeah, this is fine. That's fine? This one is fine. Okay, good. Yeah. Uh -huh. so, um, so the second key principle is to share best practices. And um, this is a concept that was, um, has been very, very popular, based a lot of the work of Edward Deming and IHI, et cetera, is based on this. So what we did is we created a best practice protocol to leverage um, the expertise of these experts at the university and shared it. With, uh, we set up 21 treatment sites all over New Mexico. We call them centers of excellence, five in the prison and 16 in community health centers. Each of these was run by a primary care doctor or a nurse practitioner or physician assistant. And we uh, said that each of these sites would now treat hepatitis C in their own local areas with help from us. And we shared our guidelines with them. And the third key principle in Project ECHO is case-based learning. So the challenge for us was how are we going to make a primary care doctor who had never ever treated hepatitis C or gone to a fellowship in liver disease, how are we going to make them as expert as a multidisciplinary team at the university? And we said we would use the same model of what we call virtual grand rounds or case-based learning where uh, they would see patients, present patients to professors at the university, we would help them manage the patients, and they would also listen to the patients of their colleagues from around the state. And that's what we are showing you in this uh, picture. Uh, we have a primary care clinicians from all over New Mexico who join us, and one by one they present patients of hepatitis C to us and to each other, and they learn from the advice that we give. They learn from the uh, brief didactic presentations that we give them but they learn from each other, uh, which is really important because they bring only one or two patients 
any particular week to this network, but they learn on 10 or 12 every week. And they, but they mostly learn by doing. What I like to essentially say is that if you want to teach your daughter to drive a car, we couldn't just give them lectures on hepatitis C. We couldn't just um, uh, give them access to a website or a book. Um, we have to sit next to them and, and do what we call guided practice. That's what we do in ECHO. Uh, we train them through the model of guided practice, which we call case-based learning. And they gradually, we've showed in our research, they go from novice to expert over time. And this results in um, a concept which we've described called force multiplication. It's a Department of Defense term which we have coined, uh, re uh, redefined in healthcare as a logarithmic improvement in capacity to deliver best practice care. Again, going back to the original comments that you need a log, uh, logarithmic improvements if you're going to solve this problem that we have currently with getting good care. So we, um, the last part of the model is that um, we use the web, web-based databases to track patient outcomes. And on the next slide, we are showing you how we make didactic presentations on hepatitis C to, to, um, to our um, colleagues. As we move forward, we did some research studies to actually evaluate this program. We'll keep going forward. Um, and um, what, we, what, what we wanted to study was, does Project ECHO diminish their professional isolation? And um, uh, rural clinicians have high turnover and they told us that a prof uh, the, here the score is one to five. Project ECHO has diminished my professional isolation 4.3, enhanced my professional satisfaction 4.8 out of five, is a benefit to my clinic 4.9, expands access to HCV treatment in our community 4.9 out of five. And this was the question I was referring to earlier. Access in general to specialty expertise and consultation is a major area of need for you and your clinic is 4.9 out of five in rural United States. We've, we've repeated this survey now in many states and everywhere we get the same answer when we are looking at federally qualified health center clinicians. So you can see if the, uh, the shortage is so severe in the United States, what could be happening in developing countries? On the next slide, um, uh, what we did is we actually evaluated the treatment outcomes. We did a prospective study comparing the rural sites and um, prisons, the primary care treatment of hepatitis C versus the university multidisciplinary treatment. And we found that we were able to improve access to care for minorities who were 68% of the rural patients. And the cure rates for genotype one was 50 and 46% uh, in ECHO versus the university and genotype two, three was 70 and 71, which was identical. And we were able to essentially show that using the model and the case-based learning and best practices, we could produce the same level of care for a very complex a disease, including administrative, uh, administering chemotherapy-like regimen in a rural area or a prison setting and get the same outcomes as the university. What was more interesting that we found was that these um, cure rates were significantly higher than when university, than when patients are treated by specialists who are practicing solo in the United States. They had a cure rate in genotype one of only 34%. And so we think that treating a patient close to their home in culturally appropriate settings by doctors whom they know and trust 
and not having to travel long distances, and you have a multidisciplinary team which includes psychiatry helping, that you can actually um, get better outcomes. And this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in, um, in 2011. We subsequently uh, did studies to show that using the ECHO model was very cost effective. In, in fact, in 60% of the patients, uh, the model was cost savings. But when we took the overall quality of, uh, for, uh, overall cost for discounted quality of life year gain was $3,500, which is considered very highly cost effective in the United States. This, these studies were done by the Tufts University, um, Steve Parker's group uh, of decision analysis. On the next slide, uh, going forward, after hepatitis C was successful, we actually showed that um, that there were several criteria uh, that we could use to expand uh, ECHO. The people wanted to do it for other diseases, so we said if the problem is complex and common, if there are new treatments, there's a high societal impact, if there are serious outcomes of untreated disease, and if you have effective treatments, you should use this model. And we, uh, the idea of force multiplier uh, is the idea that if you can have a nurse practitioner or a primary care doctor provide the same level of care, then you can have 10 times expansion. And we want to use the Pareto's principle, which essentially is the 80-20 rule. There are a few diseases that account for most of the morbidity mortality, like chronic pain, rheumatology, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, substance use, mental health disorders. So if we do echo projects for that, we can have huge impact without really having a, um, set, uh, you know, setting up hundreds of echo projects. I think we, we estimate in a country, if you estimate, put up 20 or 30 echo projects, you're going to have tremendous impact. If you could just go to the slide, potential benefits of the echo model to the health system. We will, okay. So we think that the potential benefits are to improve quality and safety, rapid learning and best practice dissemination, reducing variation in care, improving access for underserved patients, reducing disparities, workforce training, improving professional satisfaction, supporting the medical home model, cost-effective care, preventing untreated, uh, cost of untreated disease, and integrating public health. So to make all of this happen, we have to adopt a new way of thinking about knowledge in that we want to democratize it and share it freely instead of trying to monopolize it in the hands of a few super specialists. Let's go to the map of the United States. Um, we now have about um, 54 sites worldwide, but 40 in the United States, uh, 40 university hubs that have adopted Project ECHO uh, for a total of about 40 different disease areas. Uh, they include University of Washington, Utah, Nevada, Harvard, Beth Israel, Deaconess Medical Center, MD Anderson, Texas, many more, including the US Department of Defense, the VA system, et cetera. Um, we have, um, Don wanted me to speak briefly about our prison program, that we have adopted the Project ECHO model to train a workforce in the prison where we've uh, used exactly the same model of case-based learning, et cetera, and trained more than 400 community health workers in prison to educate their peers on, um, on how not to get HIV, hepatitis C, sexually transmitted diseases, how to manage your liver if you have hepatitis C. And each of the prisoners, we have trained 5,000 prisoners on health prevention. And again, 
is that prison teachers join us regular uh, video conference, etc. They graduate from our program, getting certificates. Now we are in nine countries all over the world, and um, uh, we are working with the Center of Disease Control in Namibia for HIV care, uh, in Vietnam for tuberculosis, uh, multidrug-resistant tuberculosis, um, Northern Ireland for palliative care, and um, Uruguay, Argentina, and many other uh, places at this point. The last slide I want to show you is the one that says what makes ECHO work. There are some key principles that need to be adopted, a way of thinking to make ECHO work. The first is that um, we want team-based care. That is, it's not enough for one doctor in a rural area. You want to train their nurse, their community health workers. The idea of task shifting is the idea that we want to make every human being work with mentoring at the highest possible level of their potential. Interprofessional consultation is necessary because of the knowledge explosion. No one doctor has enough knowledge to provide best practice care. We need experts collaborating with each other. In order to do task shifting effectively, we need guided practice and mentor-mentee relationships, which are very powerful modalities to improve human potential. Uh, we want to talk about the idea that ECHO is not just a knowledge network, but it's a social network. This social network, when added to a knowledge network, produces what uh, Don Berwick has described, joy of work, which is essential for us to change the world. It's not good enough to have drudgery and, and say we are doing good. And um, we want to, uh, in the center of this blue uh, diagram, is the role of technology for force multiplication. We want to demonopolize knowledge and, and really um, appreciate upfront that it's not just that these rural doctors have to learn from us. We have to learn from them as specialists. And when knowledge is applied in diverse settings for diverse problems, knowledge expansion occurs. So it's in a sense that the pie is expanding as an echo knowledge network is in play. In order to reach our goals of a billion people, uh, we invite you to join us. We're trying to create a movement. The goal isn't to build a very large organization at the University of New Mexico, but to create a movement to demonopolize and democratize knowledge for the benefit of humanity. And thank you for your attention. Wow, thank you so much. So um, Sanjeev, you did a fabulous job. I know you're very used to talking about this, but we have many years of work and hard work and experience uh, basically boiled down uh, to uh, several minutes on our program. So I really uh, appreciate it. And I hope all of you will have uh, some good questions uh, to tease out more uh, some aspects of this. Uh, this. This whole effort has gone global um, and is involved in many other health uh, conditions situations so uh, we can find out more about that but uh, so thank you and don't go away and I want to turn now to Don uh, for uh, some of your thoughts and reflections uh, I know you've been becoming a good uh, student graduate student of, of this work as well and I'd love to know um, kind of where you see this sitting in right now with so many of the uh, transformative uh, needs uh, out there thanks Don Thank you, Madge. Um, can you hear me okay? Yes, absolutely. Um, yes, well, I first met uh, Sanjeev, I think, about five years ago. Um, he was in Boston, and, uh, and we uh, had a chance to get together. And I think from the moment I heard him talk about ECHO, 
I became uh, a, a, a really serious fan of, of this work. I think it's extraordinarily important and uh, in, indeed pathfinding work. Um, if, we, if we zoom out for a minute and we look at the, um, the, the uh, need for redesign in healthcare, the principled redesign of healthcare, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of important changes that are needed in the way we approach patients. They're captured, of course, in the Crossing the Quality Chasm Report and more recent work at IHI and the Leadership Alliance and the 100 Million Healthier Lives. But time and again, the uh, much more sophisticated use of modern communication technology to thoroughly redesign care seems to me to go to the fore. It does everything right. It makes uh, care more accessible. It allows expertise to reach people who otherwise couldn't get to it. It can lower costs. Uh, it, it's bi-directional if done right so that uh, patients and families have more voice and control. It enables uh, the entire workforce instead of keeping, um, instead of keeping um, uh, expertise bottled up in specialties. What Sanjeev Arora has done with ECHO to me is, the, is the, in some ways the pinnacle of the modern uh, use of technology in, these, in this new mode. Uh, he is showing, and he's showing it scientifically in peer-reviewed publications as well as in his own eloquence, um, that, that we, we, can, we can use theory and practice in telehealth to extend the best care in the world to all the people of the world, nothing less than that. I had a chance to visit the ECHO project in person just a couple of months ago. I'd been follow tracking it and, and talking with Sanji for years, but I finally got to Albuquerque and actually sat in on one of these sessions. It was a consultative session for primary care sites dealing with frail elders and people with multi-system disease, multiple chronic illnesses. It was stunning to see what happened. A vibrant, uh, fully expert team in Albuquerque sitting around the table as a team, helping each other and uh, multiple sites presenting patients, talking about what they learned, and uh, you could just see the care get better right there, right in front of our eyes. The other thing that I mentioned in, in the chat box is uh, respect. The one other feature that absolutely stood out to me in my visit was how carefully uh, Sanjeev and his team nurtured an attitude of respect, mutuality, co-professionalism with, uh, with the doctors and nurses and community health workers and others who are out there in these remote sites giving this care. They absolutely, they oozed uh, respect and, and uh, regard, and it was bi-directional, so that these sites responded in kind with uh, energy, enthusiasm, their own, their own thoughts. And I actually saw as much learning occurring among sites as they listened to each other as between the ECHO team and the sites themselves. So I think we have a breakthrough here, and I think that the adoption and adaption, adaptation of what Sanjeev has created in the ECHO project it, it provides an enormous opportunity for healthcare organizations, not just in the U.S., but worldwide. Okay. Thank you very, very much, Don. And thanks uh, for folks who are uh, already making some comments on chat. Uh, thanks also for your patience with all our various connectivity here. Um, we'll, uh, everyone's got good headsets and this and that, and we'll, we'll smooth things out. So uh, bear with us. Um, I, I think actually most of us are hearing everyone loud and clear. Um, all right. I think what we'll do, uh, since a, quite a bit has been laid out already, let's go to discussion uh, right now. And uh, this will give us a chance to elaborate on uh, points that have been made. So, John, you want to just remind people quickly uh, how to participate in the chat. Thanks. Yeah, of course. Any questions or comments, just make sure that they're directed to all participants in the send to bar in the bottom right hand of your screen. 
All right. Thanks a lot. So, uh, all right, Sanjeev, I, there are two questions at least uh, that have come up, and let me stay on mic here too. Um, so a lot of people are just commenting on some of the ways that they have found uh, their own familiarity with Echo. And uh, somebody has said, I would suggest that what helps make ECHO work is the careful outcomes measurement. Teams know if they are succeeding and can learn more quickly as a result. So you might uh, comment on that. Uh, from a funding standpoint, how does it work at University of New Mexico and elsewhere? What other barriers have to be overcome to make this concept a reality? Uh, Sanjeev, you want to start with that one? Sure. Thank you, Matt. So I, I think, um, so first of all, you can think of ECHO as a four-legged stool, and outcomes tracking is a fourth leg. So it's technology, best practices, case-based learning, and outcomes tracking. And if that piece is missing, you're going to have an unstable ECHO project. So there has to be some way to evaluate outcomes on a continuous basis to put in a continuous improvement loop into ECHO um, for learning of the people doing it and um, getting feedback, et cetera. That's very important, and also patient outcomes if the resources are available. I think in terms of how it's funded, um, currently um, at the University of New Mexico, it is funded by the state legislature. It's funded by our state Medicaid program because, um, as I mentioned earlier, our mission is to serve the most underserved, and most of them have Medicaid now. Um, thanks to the Affordable Care Act and uh, Don Berwick's leadership in, in um, getting that train started uh, before he left. I, I think that, um, so, so what happened, Medicaid funds is we also have a foundational, uh, 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 you know, grants from foundations. We have grants from federal government, including Center of Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, um, um, AHR, Agency of Healthcare Research and Quality, HRSA, et cetera. So I think there are multiple funding sources but ultimately, what we hope is that the model will get incorporated into accountable care organizations. Uh, we don't see that the fee-for-service model is a good fit for what ECHO does. I mean, we have been approached by many uh, managed care companies to pay us every time we consult. The problem is that actually turns the incentives back on its head. Because remember, we are trying to teach people to fish rather than giving them fish. And if you start paying academic medical centers to giving them fish every time, then that they don't lose the incentive of training these primary care clinicians to become as good as we are. And so that's the reason uh, we believe that ECHO will fit best when uh, the country moves into accountable care. It's a little bit of a misfit right now with fee-for-service. Okay. Thank you very much. A lot of really good questions, Sanjeev, following on that one. Maybe I'll just pop over to you, Don, just very quickly uh, and ask you, what do you think about the best fit uh, for ECHO? Uh, Sanjeev talked about ACOs and other models that are emerging that will perhaps be able to embrace this more. Do you, does, do you share that sense? I do. Uh, I think we're, we're in a dynamic time now in payment as we move toward more consolidated, I hope someday global or capitated payment, the more the delivery system, the organization is responsible for care of a population, the more they're going to be intrigued with uh, different ways to care with better outcomes at, at, at uh, lower cost, which ECHO I think does provide. In the fee-for-service environment right now, as one of the questioners, uh, as your question implied, there is a, there's a gap. Uh, the fee-for-service payment systems have not yet caught up with 
with the potential of projects like Echo to offer care. So there isn't a there isn't a terrific fee for service model that I'm aware of yet. Uh, there will be shortly, though. I think that this is just uh, this is going to be skating where the puck's going to go, and I think the puck here is going to be favoring ways to help people that don't require them to travel and that democratize knowledge exactly the way Sanjeev is doing. Okay, thank you very much. And just a quick little uh, reminder, Don, to stay on that little microphone of yours on your headset as much as possible because I know nobody wants to miss anything you're saying, but we are hearing you very well. All right, Sanjeev, we've got quite a roster of questions here. Let me see if I can uh, work through them. Uh, One person asked about clinical governance. Uh, when you are kind of moving back and forth from um, specialists and a, maybe an academic medical center to a primary care site. Um, that may relate to an additional question that just flew in about some legal issues here. Uh, people are interested in obstetrical care, uh, some concerns or questions about privacy when so much is being shared in these uh, kind of virtual clinics uh, and, and teaching sessions. And uh, maybe I'll, I'll stop there. There are more, but I'll, I'll start. I start with those three. Okay. So, um, thank you, Matt. Yeah. And one, one comment regarding the last question is that organizations which have fully accountable care right now, like Department of Defense, VA, are adopting Echo at a very rapid pace, and the Kaiser has also signed a collaborative agreement with us to do the same. Just to let you know. So, um, in terms of uh, privacy. That's a really good question that uh, all exchange of information on ECHO is in de-identified ways. The electronic uh, software that we use to exchange information has special capabilities to strip all identifiers so that the discussions are about 48-year-old men rather than John Brown. So that's a really important question. Thank you. The governance issues is that the care, responsibility of the care continues to reside at the primary care site. All medical, legal, and other responsibility lies at the primary care site. And um, there is, uh, this has been examined by uh, attorneys from all over the United States uh, in the universities that have adopted it, like University of Chicago and others that I mentioned earlier. And essentially, there is no doctor-patient relationship being established between the specialty team and the patient. It is the primary care doctor that is, that is uh, taking the responsibility. Very much like this has been going on for time immemorial that uh, primary care doctors have been calling in and um, asking academic medical centers advice on patients that they're taking care of. This is very similar to that. It's just that it's being done in a much more structured way where there is ongoing learning uh, from each case and we are creating experts in these fields. So, uh, but, but essentially, in order for a successful lawsuit to occur, uh, there needs to be serious harm done or harm done. Best practice has to be violated, and there should be a doctor-patient relationship. And uh, for academic medical centers, that condition is not met. For rural doctors, now this has been going on for 13 years, and there's never been a lawsuit. There are 2,400 clinics that are currently involved doing it. And essentially, actually, the care we provide is better because it's primary care doctor with a lot of input. Okay, thank you. Here's a maybe a um, just get this one in as well. Somebody is asking about how do staff and all these providers that you're doing guided practice with how do they get that protected time for learning? Somebody has asked about that. 
so the, uh, so that is uh, that is a sort of an Achilles heel for Echo. Um, the the fact is that uh, they all volunteer on their own time. Um, that's the only way we know how. Uh, so once a, so let's say a primary care doctor decides to become a specialist in in liver disease, then they volunteer a couple of hours a week to join this knowledge network, always at a fixed time. So they adjust their calendar um, to actually do that. Uh, right now, there's no reimbursement for these rural clinicians to actually spend the time to become experts. But as, um, as accountable care organizations start seeing the benefit of increased access, higher satisfaction for patients, better quality, and lower cost at the same time, then they will probably uh, start um, covering the time. Most organizations like VA, et cetera, DOD, just allocate the time for people to participate. There's no other way right now for us to reimburse people, so it's purely on a volunteer basis. But we hope that there'll be new models developed to cover some of this, because if you look at any other industry which has enormous complexity, let's take air traffic controllers, let's take um, people who use complex machines, uh, most industry spends a lot of time keeping them updated. Now, um, whereas in healthcare, what happens is, because of the fee-for-service system, when a doctor steps out of his clinic to learn, they actually get penalized uh, on a productivity basis. And so my own belief is that that's not a really good way to run a very complex system, where we don't have a dedicated time for producers to actually keep up with the knowledge base. We do offer uh, no-cost continuing medical education credits. Around the world, millions of, the, uh, millions of continuing medical education credits have been offered. In New Mexico alone, we have off offered and delivered 70,000 hours of uh, no-cost continuing medical education credit to uh, doctors and nurse practitioners in um, New Mexico. All right, thank you. Um, you're, I really, uh, you're, you're on the hot seat, the best sense, uh, Sanjeev, and all these fabulous questions. I do want to remind people, and we'll throw it into the chat again, and it will be in the resource document. Uh, Project Echo has a fabulous website, and there is lots and lots of information, background, uh, and all kinds of ways that will give you a, a feel for the whole thing, including somebody's asking about software, uh, the technology connections, that sort of thing. Um, I want to also flip to Don and Saranya both right now because I do want to mention uh, the talk about force multiplier. Um, you all are kind of witness to this right on this program today. Project Echo and Sanjeev spoke to members of IHI's Leadership Alliance uh, in April and uh, folks kind of get their heads turned around uh, by this and I'm curious I thought I'd ask Saranya what is it that the organizations there, some of the largest in the country uh, but folks who are really looking for change, uh, major change, what is, is it that people are, are drawn to about this and what kinds of activities? Uh, maybe, Don, I'll come to you next. Thanks, Sarenya. Thanks very much, Madge. Well, um, I've had the pleasure of visiting a number of Project ECHO sites and also getting to know Dr. Aurora personally. And uh, the Leadership Alliance is a group of about 40 leading healthcare executives and their teams uh, really looking to deliver on the full promise of the triple aim. And we 
they're sort of characterized in three ways, uh, three characteristics, generosity, curiosity, and courage. And I think those three uh, characteristics really exemplify Dr. Aurora and his team and what Project Echo is trying to do. The Leadership Alliance also really um, focused on developing some guideposts as they as they usher in this new era of healthcare. Uh, and the concepts, many of which you've heard today, like move knowledge, not people, uh, assume abundance, eliminate walls. Uh, these are the types of radical redesign principles that the Alliance is working on that really resonate um, and are exemplified through the work of Project Echo. So a number, uh, Dr. Aurora was very kind to speak to the, the IHI Leadership Alliance group in April, and a number of them are now working on setting up ECHOs for their own underserved communities, whether that's in urban area, urban areas of underserved, rural areas. Uh, also, there's an, uh, one of them that's working on um, connecting in prisons and, and modeling a prison system uh, like Dr. Aurora's in New Mexico. Um, in addition, the use of really the use of community health workers, which is another sort of aspect of the Project ECHO program that really resonated with a number of Alliance members. Uh, the last thing I'll, I'll sort of note is uh, that a lot of what Dr. Rora and Project Echo does is very open source. The the generosity of Dr. Rora and his team and the ways in which people can become engaged and become a part of the Echo community, uh, I think is very, very unique. Okay, thanks, Saranya. And that does relate to uh, a question and comment in the chat. A couple of people very, very uh, keen on what about communities in underserved urban areas? And uh, Saranya is referring to that. Uh, Sanjeev, do you want to say more about kind of where that uh, echo might be migrating there uh, already, perhaps? Thanks. Sure. And, you know, we have a, a several very robust applications of ECHO, which are purely urban. One of the most important is the University of Chicago, where there is 800,000 African-Americans living in a very um, concentrated geographic area in the south side of Chicago. And um, they have 40 federally qualified health centers, and the University of Chicago has connected them for difficult-to-treat hypertension, kidney disease, which is rampant in these populations. And in terms of software and technology that you mentioned, we just want you to know that anybody who partners with us, we provide them access to worldwide video conferencing solution and all our software at no cost to them. And we also, so essentially up to 2019, all they would need is a high broadband and a camera in their a webcam, which costs about $100 to actually connect with Project Echo, set up their own Echoes. And we also have training programs here, which are also at no cost, where we provide, they can come here and learn from us. We can provide them technical assistance to set up their own program. Okay, thank you. Um, Don, let me sort of uh, just, uh, you're much, much, you have your ear to the ground often. What kind of uh, pushback can you imagine? I mean, this is disruptive, uh, disruptive on a number of fronts. Uh, and I'll ask Sanjeev about that as well in terms of uh, there's all kinds of ways that we want to believe. Of course, specialists want to democratize knowledge. Uh, but uh, people haven't all been trained in that way. And I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are about this. How ready uh, is the field uh, to sort of move in this direction? 
Well, I'm very optimistic about the field, uh, its current readiness, and what's going to happen pretty quickly given the pressures and, and needs in healthcare. The pushback is there. Sanjeev can talk more about specifically. Uh, I'll give you uh, several examples. One is on the payment side. Uh, I think payers are cautious here. It may look a bit like a Pandora's box in which once they agree to pay for remote consultations, uh, it, the, the lid is off and, and not everyone may have the discipline or quality that Sanjeev has built in. How, how can they protect themselves against uh, overuse? A second issue is, uh, is uh, scope of practice. When I watched uh, the ECHO uh, session that I set in on, uh, on care of multi uh, chronically ill people with multiple, multiple, multiple chronic illness, I could see uh, nurse practitioners, uh, nurses, uh, um, uh, community health workers online who were being uh, coached to do things that normally would be reserved for specialists. I think this is exactly right, and the evidence now, and Sanjeev has published it, shows the results could be great, but people that are very worried about scope of practice or I'll even say guild issues are, uh, are going to be, uh, they're going to be cautious here, and I hope we'll, be, we'll, we'll, we'll eventually see the, the wisdom. A third area is licensure and regulation. Some of the pushback here has actually occurred in the legal realm. For example, in the state of Texas, there's been some uh, legislation uh, that actually chills the use of telemedicine and telehealth. I think that will be evanescent. I doubt it's going to stick. But uh, these are this is uh, self-protective behaviors which are going to make it may make it harder to um, engage in, in practice through telehealth uh, across the normal boundaries for licensure. Uh, I should say recently the CMS rule for the advanced ACOs has very specifically uh, given them much more license to use telehealth and telemedicine. I think we're going to see more of that on the payer side uh, pretty quickly. Okay, Sanjeev knows more about what's actually been, no, been the obstacle. That's, that's helpful, Don. I appreciate that. Sanjeev, what, what are your thoughts? And I guess one question, just conceptually, because I did go to lengths, as I think you do on your the website, to distinguish what you're up to from telemedicine, uh, at least, or telehealth, as people say. Uh, and yet you're in that in the neighborhood, so a lot of rules and regs and things that might change there would also perhaps impact you. Uh, but where do you see at least pushback or challenges right now? So, so I think that um, you know so far in the, on the ground we have not experienced a lot of pushback other than the we haven't found a payment mechanism right now fully, but the thing is the reason we haven't experienced any pushback from specialists particularly is um, we have tried to focus all our energy so far on underserved populations. And so almost all specialists uh, are having a tremendous difficulty getting to these underserved populations. That's what I showed you that uh, Medicaid patients across this country are having a very hard time accessing specialists. And so we are focusing on them. Many, many specialists in private practice in the United States don't accept Medicaid patients. And so, so in a sense, we are running a train on a slightly different track right now. And uh, the other issue, of course, as Serenia mentioned, that doing ECHO does require an attitude of abundance, that of sharing for human good. And, and that's something that may or may not completely be bought in by everyone. So we recognize that upfront. Uh, but on the other hand, what we have found is there are a very large number of people in the world who want to share what they've learned. Lots of specialists in the world who are very, very uh, concerned that their impact on the world, their knowledge is very limited because they can only impact those patients that they see in person. 
and so their their, their calendar becomes uh, they become sort of servants of their calendar whereas we want to release them to to help a hundred times more patients than they would normally see and so we we've, we've been very surprised that there's a tremendous amount of interest in doing echo projects all over the world despite the fact that it flies in the face of some of these uh, turf issues of scope of practice and all these uh, and payment issues and quality concerns, et cetera. Uh, but in general, what we are finding is when you set up a collaborative model where people exchange ideas in open about patients, uh, quality naturally gravitates in a better direction because we are not only accountable to patients, we are accountable to each other to produce evidence for the remarks we make and for the comments and the recommendations we have and so there's a natural upward evolution, evolution of quality when everything is so transparent and open and in a, occurring in a teaching format. Thank you uh, very much. I appreciate that. Uh, there are several questions about conditions and whether they are good fits for ECHO or perhaps already part of uh, the program right now. That includes uh, people are asking just in general about pediatrics and pediatric patients. Uh, diabetes uh, was asked about, obstetrics, uh, and um, curious if you might even be able to compare and contrast for us some of the areas uh, where ECHO is helping now um, in this country and how that compares to perhaps some of the other uh, countries that you're involved in. Sure. So. Um Thank you for that question. I think that in pediatrics, it's a very, very large uh, initiative of ours. We have a worldwide collaboration signed and delivered by with the American Association of Pediatrics for a worldwide rollout of uh, ECHO in the pediatric field. Currently, we have ECHOs in pediatric um, uh, epilepsy and, and now launching projects in pediatric endocrinology and um, many others. Um, that are, uh, sickle cell disease has already been launched by Johns Hopkins and others uh, as the collaboration with American Association of Pediatrics moves forward. We have a very, very large echo project on endocrinology and diabetes in, um, in uh, the University of New Mexico funded by the Helmsley Trust. And now uh, it, and similar projects will be rolled out in Northern Ireland. There's one in already in Irish Republic in Galway University of Colorado is planning one, and the University of Missouri is planning another one, and, and diabetes. In high-risk pregnancy, um, we have had a project, um, you know, high-risk pregnancy in the University of New Mexico for a long time, and we think it's a very, very robust application of the model. In other countries, um, it tends to be a little bit different in the sense that it is a very high focus on infectious disease. So as you can see, in Vietnam, it's multidrug-resistant tuberculosis. And um, in, uh, in, in Africa, it's mostly HIV. So recently, um, HRSA has uh, chosen an, uh, one of our partners called HIPQOL to offer ECHO-related uh, quality improvement services to uh, up to 20 countries in HIV, uh, where the PEPFAR funding, which is the federal government funding for HIV goes. So I think that there are, in, in developing countries, it's mostly infectious disease, whereas in developed nations like Europe and the United States, it's mostly chronic disease that we are working on. Although HIV is definitely there in the United States, and the health departments are now from across the country have approached us for using it in 
even though it's a rare disease, tuberculosis, but um, they want to use ECHO for that. So. Okay, thank you very much. Um, both Sanjeev and, and Don and Saren, yeah, a quick, quick comment from John uh, just to get this on the docket. Go ahead, John. Yeah, we flashed this slide a little earlier while uh, Saren was talking about uh, the IHI Leadership Alliance, but we're now enrolling for year two. If you or your organization uh, would like to join, it's a dynamic collaboration of health system executives and teams who share a mission to work together and with patients, workforces, and communities to deliver the full promise of the IHI Triple Aim. Uh, it's a great opportunity, and you get to work with Saren and Dr. Don Berwick. All right, thanks a lot, John. Don, I want to. We're, um, we're we'll we'll get in a few more questions. Don, I want to come back to you around this point about uh, something being able to migrate uh, over from you know f being focused more on underserved communities and many of the patients uh, and issues uh, that specialists are not really getting to these days in this in the U.S. Do you see that as a promising trajectory? In other words, that we're going to see uh, these models actually begun, you know, they'll, they'll start to be adopted uh, in other ways as well. Um, I was very struck by Sanjeev's point in a way that this, 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 this work in some ways is not treading as much on anyone's territory because specialists aren't involved uh, maybe in the ways that some might want uh, for the more underserved. What, what, what are your thoughts about where that's headed? I think it's expanding. I, w I think we, we need to be cautious about one thing here. There, there could be a tendency in uh, projecting this kind of uh, knowledge use into uh, underserved populations, both in the U.S. and abroad, that it's a kind of uh, dumbing down or, uh, or compromise in the quality of the care. We, sh we should not accept that as anything close to the truth. What Sanjeev has shown is that this is a better way to deploy knowledge to help people better even than if for people who have the option of getting to Albuquerque. Um, and so I, I think this could be a case where uh, serve uh, ways to serve the needs of a population of disadvantaged leapfrog the standard system and actually produce better care and better outcomes uh, by using modern technology. Uh, so I, I think it, I suspect that that will have traction. And you can see the numbers. Uh, in fact, there may be no way at all to meet the needs of the underserved populations of the world without a breakthrough of this kind of uh, disruptive technology as Sanjeev has, has progressed. So I, I think it's got a very, very bright future. Thank you very much, Don. Well, Sanjeev, as we get to c close to the top of the hour, I'd love it if you could describe uh, some, it looks like you've got a lot of fans on the chat here and people who've got some of their own uh, initiatives getting off the ground, and thank you for all these links. I do want to remind everybody that this chat, uh, you can download it when you get off the show as well as all the slides, and then, of course, this is all posted to our archive page uh, tomorrow morning. Uh, so great to see all of you. But um, how could folks who joined and, you know, really weren't as aware of all this, and some of people want to just kind of check it out and... Uh, get involved in some way? Where where should they begin? So firstly, I think the first thing, as you mentioned, they could go to our website, which would be the least amount of time required to learn about us. A second potential way, if they want a slightly deeper dive but don't want to travel, is what we call an echo introduction. People from all over the world join once a month of, uh, on an echo introduction. And on the website, you can see how it's a 90-minute video conference, um, so our team will help them set up their video, etc., where you will interact with people all over the world and have a 90-minute discussion on ECHO without, from your own offices or your own countries. 
That's the second option. For people who want a deeper dive and have a day to spare with us, we invite them here for an echo introduction. I mean, for an echo orientation, and you can come here for one day um, orientation, which we host. So the next one is July 15th. And the next echo introduction, the 90 minute on video is uh, on July, July 14th. And, um, uh, but, if, uh, but then there are many, many institutions who want to actually start ECHO projects. And once they decide to do that, then they sign collaborative agreements with us, and we bring them here for what we call an ECHO immersion, which can last anywhere between three and seven days, and they come as teams. And we train the whole teams, we give them all our software, et cetera, that they need, and give their whole teams the technology, et cetera, training, for how to run ECHO projects. So these are the sort of four levels of um, engagement. Okay, well thank you very much. Uh, that makes uh, quite a bit of sense. And you really covered an enormous amount of territory on this program. And I do want to thank you so much, uh, Dr. Aurora, Sanjeev Aurora, and I want to thank you, Don uh, Berwick, as well. Um, I think we used our own technology here pretty masterfully uh, to connect all of you. And I think this has been a very, very exciting discussion. We do want to encourage you uh, to go to um, Project Echo's website because you'll be reminded of these dates and upcoming ways that uh, points of entry, but also rich resources and this whole also dimension of community health workers and uh, really uh, empowering and equipping people to do much more as peers uh, for uh, for others uh, who might be suffering from various illnesses and prevention as well. So very very good. I also want to thank you, Saranya. Uh, so um, as I said, I owe it all to Serenia that I finally, I feel like I'm a little late to the party that I'm finally uh, having a WHI on this topic. But um, you, my audience today, let us know how we did and whether we uh, met some of your needs and uh, how this worked out for you. So thank you, wonderful audience as well. Next, next up on WHI on July 23rd, we're going earlier in the day to maximize uh, global attendance. Uh, we're going to be talking about saving lives by design, lessons learned uh, from Ghana's Project 5's Alive. And um, I guess we're on a roll here with sort of global health, uh, ways that we can do all this uh, learning every which way. And we do hope you'll join. This is an amazing uh, initiative uh, that has a lot of learning for all of us. A reminder, you can download the chat, any slides. Please do the survey. We really want to know what you thought of the show, how we can make it better. Check out the archive page for WIHI. That'll be available as of tomorrow morning. Any questions whatsoever, you can always email info at IHI.org. Again, thank you, my guests, Sanjeev Aurora, Don Berwick, Saranya Lair, and wonderful audience. Uh, thanks for all your curiosity and your interest uh, in innovation. The people who help make WIHI possible include John Gothier, Matt Morris, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Ruth James. And it's my privilege, as you all know, to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Have a good day, everyone.